337, chapters 9 and 10. Book talk begins at 13 minutes and 30 seconds. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 337, You're Feeling Very Sleepy. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarn just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors' pages can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go take a look. Well, hello. Taxes are done. I'm feeling ever so much better about life, knowing that they're done. And, and... I'm feeling very sleepy. And this is not because I'm being hypnotized or anything like that, but because I got the preliminary results from the sleep study. Now, hold on to your hats, especially those of you who have followed this podcast for a while. You know how much I seem to be able to get done in a day, right? Or a week or a month or a year. And and it seems like a lot. And yet I'm always tired, which I thought was just because I'm doing a lot. It turns out after this sleep study, it's not so much that. It's that I'm not actually getting much, any, much restful sleep. I'm going straight from wide awake to the most active mental stage of sleep, which is your dream state. So I I haven't gotten a good night's sleep in a really long time, which is why I can get eight or nine hours of sleep, wake up, and be ready to go right back to bed. And I could, and I could fall asleep. Uh, it's called narcolepsy. And yes, you may have noticed I have not fallen asleep on the microphone. I have not fallen asleep with my face in the mashed potatoes. I have not had problems driving. I am able to stay awake. The difference is, if you gave me a two-minute break and I put my head down, I'd be out like a light. And it's it's not just because I'm doing too much. It's because I'm really not sleeping the way normal muggles are supposed to sleep. So I find out more about this tomorrow, and I'm fascinated. I don't really know what's causing it. I don't know what can be done for it. But I hope there's something, because I'm really tired all the time. And I'm I'm not anemic, and it's not my thyroid, and all this stuff. So my husband and I are both very curious to see what this turns out to be. But uh, but I thought I'd, I'd give you the preliminary results, just in case you wondered. Well, I've put another couple goofy pictures up on the show notes for this week. <laughs> I, there's lots of famous art out there, 
I see no reason for me not to do a new one a week for a really long time. I'm having the most fun doing these things. They're they're hilarious. And uh, no, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to tell you what art I used this week. But I am going to tell you this. Uh, people have been pinning these on Pinterest, and it's really kind of fun to follow the trail. I've never actually tried to follow... Uh, the pinning of one of my pins. You know, where has it gotten repinned? Who's repinned it? What have they commented on? And things like that. So this is, it's kind of a treasure hunt and I'm having, I'm having a marvelous time. So feel free, pin away, have a lot of fun. It's a, it's, it's a curiosity and it's, it's making me laugh, which is good because I'm so tired. Like right there, I had to pause the microphone so I could go yawn, which I've, done a lot of lately. Be that as it may, however, uh, I because I have been so tired, I really have not been able to continue working on the Vogue 2002 map of the world Afghan. I just, I was so afraid I was going to mess up Africa. And and now I'm into uh, Saudi Arabia and and, and moving up through the that whole um, the Indian subcontinent and and all of that, and I I don't want to mess I don't want to mess it up. So that's on hold, probably until next winter when it's cold again. Well, we still don't have anywhere to live come April thirtieth this year. So if anyone knows anywhere between say Northern Virginia and mid Northern ish Eastern Pennsylvania, uh. Let me know. And and even more than that, if you know anyone in the greater McLean Falls Church, Alexandria, Arlington area, uh, who has a mother-in-law apartment over a garage or a basement apartment with a, a separate entrance, because I really don't want to live on top of people, uh, I have to find some place down here to stay with the boys that we can afford that uh, lets them finish their school year here. I really don't want to take them out for the last two months of school. That's just cruel. So uh, if you know anyone who might have a place, please get in touch with me or or tell them to email me, heather at craftlit.com. I will get the message. There's also been some weirdness with a, a couple of episodes, and I, one of them I have no idea what happened. Uh, the other ones I know what happened, and I just need to fix it. If that ever happens, if uh, a show loads wrong or there's a weird music cue in the middle of the story that you're like, why would she have done that? Don't hesitate to write me, heather at craftlit.com. Just tell me the episode number and roughly the, the time code when something happened. Like, well, it was somewhere between 15 and 25 minutes, but I'm not sure where. That helps an enormous amount. I can go back and hunt stuff down and, and pull it apart and fix it and then reload it. So no reason to suffer. Just let me know. I actually think uh, much of my creativity over the next couple of months will be <laughs> packing. And Project 333 kinds of things, you know, figuring out how to live with less, because I will be, for May and June, living out of a suitcase, which is kind of stinky, but doable. And uh, And of course, you know, we're going through the Great Purge as we pack to figure out uh, what do we really want to take? What do we really want to drag with us as we move yet again? And so that's that's pretty much all my news. Uh, oh, the uh, What Would Madame Defarge Knit book, the next one, Shakespeare. It is 
gradually coming closer to being almost on the way to being done. <laughs> it's such a process. So many people are involved and so many bits and pieces, you know, there's so many bits and pieces that are, are moving pieces and you can't do this until you get that. And then these things have to be all in the same place at the same time and all of it has to be arranged. But all of that is a long way of saying, if you are interested in having me come to your guild, your store, your local anything, and bring the trunk show with me, to sign books, teach classes, things like that, let me know at heather at craftlit.com. Uh, I'm already starting to be contacted by yarn stores uh, around the country. You know, I think the third book is a thing. Now it's a thing. The first book was kind of cute. The second book was really interesting. Lots of beautiful patterns. It was all great. But the third book, now it's a thing. And now people are starting to contact me for uh, when is the book coming out and will you be able to come to our store or will you be able to come to our guild? And so, so yes, the answer is yes, I would love to. Please contact me and we will figure out where, when, how, and uh, the who will be me. And of course, if you live in an area with any of the Defarge designers, um, we've got people all over the country, uh, I'll make sure that I can get them to come too. So you not only get to meet me, but you get to meet some of the other designers, which is really cool. Uh, Erica Hernandez, when she was at Stitches, she actually got to sign books in a booth with like a big sign saying, you know, Erica Hernandez, what would Madame Defarge knit? And it just tickled me pink because the book wouldn't exist without the designers. This is the whole, my whole point is I know all these fantastic people who design really cool stuff and clever designs and interesting designs all inspired by classic literature. So if you live in, around, or near one of the other DeFarge designers, and most of us put something in our bio, I think at the back of the book, that indicated where or close to where we lived, um, feel free to ask me about that too. I would love to get a chance to be in the same place at the same time with my designers. Most of our work together has been virtual, so it would be a huge treat to get to see each other. And in fact, Meg, one of the the designers and the designer who helped with uh, did the did the yeoman's work on uh, the novel socks ebook of patterns sock patterns that go along with the grounded novel that I wrote. Uh, Meg came up with a great idea. If you are out at your local yarn store and you happen to see one of the Defarge books in the store, please pick it up and take a selfie <laughs> of yourself and the book, or have someone take a picture of you so that we can have Defarge sightings in the wild. It would be so much fun. I know lots of cooperative press books are out there now, and that includes Defarge books. So selfies of you with Defarge, send them in and I'll post them on the show notes. <laughs> I'm so excited. She has one. She sent me one. So that's what kind of sparked this whole conversation. And the last little tidbitty bit of news before we move on to North and South uh, Vanessa, Vanessa Lavin, who's a longtime listener who you may have heard me talk about before. She runs the Mixed Martial Arts and Crafts blog, and she has a survival organs shop. Uh, you really need to go look at this. Uh, Vanessa, at a far, far, far too young age, had to face cancer, uh, confront cancer and punch it down and kick its butt. And uh, and so she has some really, really interesting blog posts 
on her site. She guest posted on Mama Onitz a while ago, and then she makes and sells these organs. Like you can get lymph nodes and you're just going to have to go look. It's really, really cool. I'll put a link to Vanessa's stuff in the show notes. But she wrote and said, the actors who play Ricky Ricardo at Universal Studios and Lucy, Ricardo, Lucy Arnaz, are handpicked and approved by the Arnaz family. Way back, she thinks in probably 1995, she went to Universal Studios with her parents to visit a family friend who lived in Daytona Beach. On our way out of the park, Lucy and Ricky quite literally sprang out of nowhere. What I thought was a false front of an apartment building actually had working doors, and out pops the two of them, Lucy on a radio flyer, and we all jump a few feet in the air. Well, they talk with us a bit, and my dad starts grilling Ricky, the guy who's playing Ricky, about being from Havana. My dad was from Regla, a small and very poor town just on the other side of the bay slash inlet from Havana. It's kind of like Brooklyn and Manhattan. It was all good fun, and of course, we didn't take a photo, but I did get them to sign my autograph book. I come to find out years later that the reason why Ricky was so real was that the family is very involved with who gets to play Lucy and Desi. And boy, I can tell you, it made a huge difference. So yay Universal Studios and yay Arnaz family and yay actors who are playing Lucy and Ricky. They really, it was just lovely down at Universal Studios in Florida. So yay. All right, but enough about that now. On to North and South. All of a sudden, I remember when I did that during Dracula, I had the wolf howl. I don't have anything like that for North and South. Maybe I could get the sound of teacups clinking or a factory whistle blowing. We'll see what I can come up with. But North and South this week, I have two chapters. The, The reason is just that the first chapter is very, very brief. And the second chapter is very, very good. So that's why you're getting two today. And there there are a few things in this chapter that kind of went right over my head the first few times I read it. And then when I started doing research and, and found notes, um, they're kind of interesting little tidbits. Gaskell, Gaskell was throwing in some Easter eggs like they used to do on Lost, those things called Easter eggs where people who are watching back uh, watching the the recorded version, if they slow it down, you can see something. Or if you uh, watch it over and over again, something will become clear. It's that kind of thing. Well, Gaskell was doing this, but she was doing it for Unitarians. So there are, there are little throwaways that people who were Unitarians would catch on to, or dissenters, people would, they would catch on to, and everybody else would kind of glaze over it. And, yeah, whatever. She also threw in quite a bit of Latin every once in a while in, in these two chapters. Uh, ad libitum is uh, indiscriminately just kind of tossing it around. And uh, it's it's used kind of humorously at the beginning of chapter nine. Uh, Pythias and Damon, two uh, mythology BFFs, <laughs> two, two guys who were just best friends forever, all the way until they died. Uh, that's one. When you hear her talk about Matthew Henry's Bible commentaries, he was a dissenter. And that's that's one of the ones I was talking about. He lived from 1662 to 1714. So this was quite early. And he actually died before he finished all of his commentaries. But if you had all six volumes of his stuff, it would indicate that you are at least interested 
in what was being said in the dissenting world. There is a French term, which I am sure I will butcher, a morceau de salon, which was um, kind of a, a piano piece that would have been, it, uh, it would be the kind of piano piece that ladies would play in the parlor to entertain their guests. You know, light, not too challenging. It's not Chopin is what we're going for here. Um, so that's that's what that is. And then to me, there is a curiosity here because there's a reference to a Davenport. And the, the note that I've got says that this is a, a, a writing table that has uh, lots, of, lots of drawers in it. And this is very odd because I distinctly remember my great-grandparents talking about a Davenport, and I could swear that they were talking about a couch or a sofa. I don't know how these things got transposed, or if it was merely my somewhere between birth and seven-year-old mind not understanding what they were talking about. But I've always liked the word Davenport, it, because, I guess, because it reminds me of my great-grandparents. But uh, I don't know. Do you know what this is? I'm very curious now. And there will be a reference to American apples. This is actually a thing. Elizabeth Gaskell was sent a basket of imported American apples, which she said were quite delicious. And so, she, you know, write what you know. So here's one of those moments where something that happened in the author's life shows up in her book. And, uh, and tasty, too. There is a, a ballad a nor from Northern England, a ballad called The Ballad of Chevy Chase. This is spelled um, Chevy, C-H-E-V-Y, and then Chase is spelled C-H-A-C-E. This is not Chevy Chase, who was on Community or or was on Saturday Night Live, or was Fletch, loved Fletch. Um, but it it will it was one of those things that when I came across it, I <laughs> my reaction was what? And that's now you won't be surprised. That's what that is, and that pretty well takes care of any weirdness that you would have with these chapters. There's actually a lot more kind of colloquial and and. A localized information in in these two chapters, but but you'll see why that happens as soon as we get into chapter ten. So I'm not going to hold you back any longer. Here we go with chapter nine, first of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter nine, dressing for tea. Let China's earth, enriched with colored stains, penciled with gold and streaked with azure veins, the grateful flavor of the Indian leaf or mocha's sunburnt berry, glad receive. Mrs. Barbaud The day after this meeting with Higgins and his daughter, Mr. Hale came upstairs into the little drawing room at an unusual hour. He went up to different objects in the room, as if to examine them, but Margaret saw that it was merely a nervous trick, a way of putting off something he wished, yet feared, to say. Out it came at last. My dear, I've asked Mr. Thornton to come to tea, tonight. Mrs. Hale was leaning back in her easy chair with her eyes shut and an expression of pain on her face which had become habitual to her of late. 
but she roused up into querulousness at this speech of her husband's. Mr. Thornton, and tonight, what in the world does the man want to come here for? And Dixon is washing my muslins and laces, and there is no soft water with these horrid east winds, which I suppose we shall have all the year round in Milton. The wind is veering round, my dear, said Mr. Hale, looking out at the smoke, which drifted right from the east. Only he did not yet understand the points of the compass, and rather arranged them ad libitum according to circumstances. Don't tell me, said Mrs. Hale, shuddering up and wrapping her shawl about her still more closely. But east or west wind, I suppose this man comes. Oh, Mamma, that shows you never saw Mr. Thornton. He looks like a person who would enjoy battling with every adverse thing he could meet with, enemies, winds, or circumstances. The more it rains and blows, the more certain we are to have him. But I'll go and help Dixon. I'm getting to be a famous clear-starcher, and he won't want any amusement beyond talking to Papa. Papa, I am really longing to see the Pythias to your Damon. You know, I never saw him but once, and then we were so puzzled to know what to say to each other that we did not get on particularly well. I don't know that you would ever like him or think him agreeable, Margaret. He is not a ladies' man. Margaret wreathed her throat in a scornful curve. I don't particularly admire ladies' men, Papa. But Mr. Thornton comes here as your friend, as one who has appreciated you. The only person in Milton, said Mrs. Hale. So we will give him a welcome and some cocoa-nut cakes. Dixon will be flattered if we ask her to make some, and I will undertake to iron your caps, Mamma. Many a time that morning did Margaret wish Mr. Thornton far enough away. She had planned other employments for herself, a letter to Edith, a good piece of Dante, a visit to the Higginses, but instead she ironed away, listening to Dixon's complaints and only hoping that by an excess of sympathy she might prevent her from carrying the recital of her sorrows to Mrs. Hale. Every now and then Margaret had to remind herself of her father's regard for Mr. Thornton to subdue the irritation of weariness that was stealing over her and bringing on one of the bad headaches to which she had lately become liable. She could hardly speak when she sat down at last and told her mother that she was no longer Peggy the laundry maid but Margaret Hale the lady. She meant this speech for a little joke, and was vexed enough with her busy tongue when she found her mother taking it seriously. Yes, if anyone had told me when I was Miss Beresford and one of the bells of the county that a child of mine would have to stand half a day in a little pokey kitchen, working away like a servant, that we might prepare properly for the reception of a tradesman, and that this tradesman should be the only— Oh, Mamma, said Margaret, lifting herself up. Don't punish me so for a careless speech. I don't mind ironing or any kind of work for you and Papa. I am myself a born and bred lady through it all, even though it comes to scouring a floor or washing dishes. I am tired now just for a little while, but in half an hour I shall be ready to do the same over again. 
And as to Mr. Thornton's being in trade, why, he can't help that now, poor fellow. I don't suppose his education would fit him for much else. Margaret lifted herself slowly up and went to her own room, for just now she could not bear much more. In Mr. Thornton's house at this very same time, a similar yet different scene was going on. A large-boned lady, long past middle age, sat at work in a grim, handsomely furnished dining room. Her features, like her frame, were strong and massive rather than heavy. Her face moved slowly from one decided expression to another equally decided. There was no great variety in her countenance, but those who looked at it once generally looked at it again. Even the passers-by in the street half turned their heads to gaze an instant longer at the firm, severe, dignified woman who never gave way in street courtesy or paused in her straight onward course to the clearly defined end which she proposed to herself. She was handsomely dressed in stout black silk, of which not a thread was worn or discolored. She was mending a large, long tablecloth of the finest texture, holding it up against the light occasionally to discover thin places which required her delicate care. There was not a book about in the room, with the exception of Matthew Henry's Bible commentaries, six volumes of which lay in the center of the massive sideboard, flanked by a tea urn on one side and a lamp on the other. In some remote apartment there was exercise upon the piano going on. Someone was practicing up a morceau de salon, playing it very rapidly, every third note, on an average, being either indistinct or wholly missed out, and the loud chords at the end being half of them false, but not the less satisfactory to the performer. Mrs. Thornton heard a step, like her own in its decisive character, pass the dining room door. John, is that you? Her son opened the door and showed himself. What has brought you home so early? I thought you were going to tea with that friend of Mr. Bell's, that Mr. Ale. So I am, mother. I'm come home to dress. Dress? <laughs> when I was a girl, young men were satisfied with dressing once in a day. Why should you dress to go and take a cup of tea with an old parson? Mr. Ale is a gentleman, and his wife and daughter are ladies. Wife and daughter? Do they teach too? What do they do? You've never mentioned them. No, mother, because I have never seen Mrs. Ale. I've only seen Miss Ale for half an hour. Take care you don't get caught by a penniless girl, John. I am not easily caught, mother, as I think you knew. But I uh, must not have Miss Ale spoken of in that way, which you know is offensive to me. I was never aware of any young lady trying to catch me yet, nor do I believe that any one has ever given themselves that useless trouble. Mrs. Thornton did not choose to yield the point to her son, or else she had, in general, pride enough for her sex. Well, I only say take care. Perhaps our Milton girls have too much spirit and good feeling to go England after husbands. But this misale comes out of the aristocratic counties where, if all tales be true, husbands are reckoned prizes. Mr. Thornton's brow contracted, and he came a step forward into the room. Mother, with a short, scornful laugh, 
You will make me confess. The only time I saw Miss Ale, she treated me with the haughty civility, which had a strong flavor of contempt in it. She held herself aloof from me as if she'd been a queen and I her humble, unwashed vassal. Be easy, mother. No, I'm not easy nor content either. What business had she, a renegade clergyman's daughter, to turn up her nose at you? I would dress for none of them, a saucy set, if I were you. As he was leaving the room, he said, Mr. Ale is good and gentle and learned. He is not saucy. As for Mrs. Hale, I will tell you what she is like tonight, if you care to hear. He shut the door and was gone. Despise my son, treat him as her vassal, indeed. I should like to know where she could find such another. Boy and man, he's the noblest, stoutest heart I ever knew. I don't care if I am his mother. I can see what's what and not be blind. I know what Fanny is, and I know what John is. Despise him. I hate her. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 Wrought Iron and Gold We are the trees whom shaking fastens more. George Herbert Mr. Thornton left the house without coming into the dining room again. He was rather late and walked rapidly out to Crampton. He was anxious not to slight his new friend by any disrespectful unpunctuality. The church clock struck half-past seven as he stood at the door awaiting Dixon's slow movements, always doubly tardy when she had to degrade herself by answering the doorbell. He was ushered into the little drawing-room and kindly greeted by Mr. Hale, who led him up to his wife, whose pale face and shawl-draped figure made a silent excuse for the cold languor of her greeting. Margaret was lighting the lamp when he entered, for the darkness was coming on. The lamp threw a pretty light into the center of the dusky room, from which, with country habits, they did not exclude the night skies and the outer darkness of air. Somehow, that room contrasted itself with the one he had lately left, handsome, ponderous, with no sign of feminine habitation except in the one spot where his mother sat, and no convenience for any other employment than eating and drinking. To be sure, it was a dining room. His mother preferred to sit in it, and her will was a household law. But the drawing room was not like this. It was twice twenty times as fine, not one quarter as comfortable. Here were no mirrors, not even a scrap of glass to reflect the light and answer the same purpose as water in a landscape. No gilding, a warm, sober breadth of coloring, well relieved by the dear old Helston chintz curtains and chair covers. An open davenport stood in the window opposite the door. In the other there was a stand with a tall white china vase from which drooped wreaths of English ivy, pale green birch, and copper-colored beech leaves. Pretty baskets of work stood about in different places, and books, not cared for on account of their binding solely, lay on one table as if recently put down. Behind the door was another table decked out for tea, 
with a white tablecloth on which flourished the cocoa nut cakes and a basket piled with oranges and ruddy American apples heaped on leaves. It appeared to Mr. Thornton that all these graceful cares were habitual to the family and especially of a piece with Margaret. She stood by the tea table in a light-colored muslin gown which had a good deal of pink about it. She looked as if she was not attending to the conversation, but solely busy with the teacups, among which her round ivory hands moved with pretty noiseless daintiness. She had a bracelet on one taper arm, which would fall down over her round wrist. Mr. Thornton watched the replacing of this troublesome ornament with far more attention than he listened to her father. It seemed as if it fascinated him to see her push it up impatiently until it tightened her soft flesh, and then to mark the loosening, the fall. He could almost have exclaimed, There it goes again. There was so little left to be done after he arrived at the preparation for tea that he was almost sorry the obligation of eating and drinking came so soon to prevent his watching Margaret. She handed him his cup of tea with the proud air of an unwilling slave, but her eye caught the moment when he was ready for another cup, and he almost longed to ask her to do for him what he saw her compelled to do for her father, who took her little finger and thumb in his masculine hand and made them serve as sugar tongs. Mr. Thornton saw her beautiful eyes lifted to her father, full of light, half laughter and half love, as this bit of pantomime went on between the two, unobserved as they fancied by any. Margaret's head still ached, as the paleness of her complexion and her silence might have testified, but she was resolved to throw herself into the breach if there was any long, untoward pause rather than that her father's friend, pupil, and guest should have cause to think himself in any way neglected. But the conversation went on, and Margaret drew into a corner near her mother with her work after the tea things were taken away, and felt that she might let her thoughts roam without fear of being suddenly wanted to fill up a gap. Mr. Thornton and Mr. Hale were both absorbed in a continuation of some subject which had been started at their last meeting. Margaret was recalled to a sense of the present by some trivial, low-spoken remark of her mother's, and on suddenly looking up from her work, her eye was caught by the difference of outward appearance between her father and Mr. Thornton as betokening such distinctly opposite natures. Her father was of slight figure, which made him appear taller than he really was when not contrasted, as at this time, with the tall, massive frame of another. The lines in her father's face were soft and waving, with a frequent undulating kind of trembling movement passing over them, showing every fluctuating emotion. The eyelids were large and arched, giving to the eyes a peculiar languid beauty which was almost feminine. The brows were finely arched, but were, by the very size of the dreamy lids, raised to a considerable distance from the eyes. Now in Mr. Thornton's face, the straight brows fell low over the clear, deep-set, earnest eyes, which, without being unpleasantly sharp, seemed intent enough to penetrate into the very heart and core of what he was looking at. The lines in the face were few but firm, as if they were carved in marble, 
and lay principally about the lips, which were slightly compressed over a set of teeth so faultless and beautiful as to give the effect of sudden sunlight when the rare bright smile, coming in an instant and shining out of the eyes, changed the whole look from the severe and resolved expression of a man ready to do and dare everything to the keen, honest enjoyment of the moment which is seldom shown so fearlessly and instantaneously, except by children. Margaret liked this smile. It was the first thing she had admired in this new friend of her father's, and the opposition of character shown in all these details of appearance she had just been noticing seemed to explain the attraction they evidently felt towards each other. She rearranged her mother's worsted work and fell back into her own thoughts as completely forgotten by Mr. Thornton as if she had not been in the room, so thoroughly was he occupied in explaining to Mr. Hale the magnificent power, yet delicate adjustment of the might of the steam hammer, which was recalling to Mr. Hale some of the wonderful stories of subservient genii in the Arabian Nights, one moment stretching from earth to sky and filling all the width of the horizon, at the next, obediently compressed into a vase small enough to be born in the hand of a child. And this imagination of power, this practical realization of a gigantic thought, came out of one man's brain in our good town. That very man has it within him to mount step by step on each wonder he achieves to higher marvel still. And I'll be bound to say we have many among us who, if he were gone could spring into the breach and carry on the war which compels, and shall compel, all material power to yield to science. Your boast reminds me of the old lines, I've a hundred captains in England, he said, as good as ever was he. At her father's quotation, Margaret looked suddenly up with inquiring wonder in her eyes. How in the world had they got from cogwheels to Chevy Chase? It is no boast of mine, replied Mr. Thornton. It is plain matter of fact. I won't deny that I am proud of belonging to a town, or perhaps I should rather say a district, the necessities of which give birth to such grandeur of conception. I would rather be a man toiling, suffering, nay, failing and successless here, then lead a dull, prosperous life in the old-worn grooves of what you call more aristocratic society down in the South, with their slow days of careless ease. One may be clogged with honey and unable to rise and fly. You are mistaken, said Margaret, roused by the aspersion on her beloved South to a fond vehemence of defense that brought the color into her cheeks and the angry tears into her eyes. You do not know anything about the South. If there is less adventure or less progress, I suppose I must not say less excitement from the gambling spirit of trade, which seems requisite to force out these wonderful inventions, there is less suffering also. I see men here going about in the streets who look ground down by some pinching sorrow or care, who are not only sufferers but haters. Now in the South we have our poor, but there is not that terrible expression in their countenances of a sullen sense of injustice which I see here. You do not know the South, Mr. Thornton, she concluded, 
collapsing into a determined silence and angry with herself for having said so much. And may I say you do not know the North? asked he, with an inexpressible gentleness in his tone, as he saw that he had really hurt her. She continued resolutely silent, yearning after the lovely haunts she had left far away in Hampshire, with a passionate longing that made her feel her voice would be unsteady and trembling if she spoke. At any rate, Mr. Thornton, said Mrs. Hale, you will allow that Milton is a much more smoky, dirty town than you will ever meet with in the South. I'm afraid I must give up its cleanliness, said Mr. Thornton, with a quick, gleaming smile. But we are bidden by Parliament to burn our own smoke, so I suppose, like good little children, we shall do as we are bid sometime. But I think you told me you had altered your chimneys so as to consume the smoke, did you not? asked Mr. Hale. Mine were altered by my own will before Parliament meddled with the affair. It was an immediate outlay, but it repays me in the saving of coal. I'm not sure whether I should have done it if I had waited until the act was passed. At any rate, I should have waited to be informed against and fined, and given all the trouble and yielding that I legally could. But all laws which depend for their enforcement upon informers and fines become inert from the odiousness of the machinery. I doubt if there has been a chimney in Milton informed against for five years past, although some are constantly sending out one-third of their coal in what is called here unparliamentary smoke. I only know it is impossible to keep the muslin blinds clean here above a week together, and at Helston, we have had them up for a month or more, and they have not looked dirty at the end of that time. And as for hands, Margaret, how many times did you say you had washed your hands this morning before twelve o'clock? Three times, was it not? Yes, Mamma. You seem to have a strong objection to acts of Parliament and all legislation affecting your mode of management down here at Milton, said Mr. Hale. Yes, I have, and many others have as well, and with justice, I think. The whole machinery, I don't mean the wood and iron machinery now, of the cotton trade is so new that it is no wonder if it does not work well in every part all at once. Seventy years ago, what was it? And now, what is it not? Raw, crude materials came together. Men of the same level as regarded education and station took suddenly the different positions of masters and men owing to the mother wit as regarded opportunities and probabilities which distinguished some and made them far-seeing as to what great future lay concealed in that rude model of Sir Richard Arkwright's. The rapid development of what might be called a new trade gave those early masters enormous power of wealth and command. I don't mean merely over the workmen. I mean over purchasers, over the whole world's market. Why, I may give you as an instance an advertisement inserted not fifty years ago in a Milton paper that so-and-so, one of the half-dozen calico printers of the time, would close his warehouse at noon each day, therefore that all purchasers must come before that hour. Fancy a man dictating in this manner the time when he would sell and when he would not sell. 
Now, I believe if a good customer chose to come at midnight, I should get up and stand hat and hand to receive his orders. Margaret's lip curled, but somehow she was compelled to listen. She could no longer abstract herself in her own thoughts. I only name such things to show what almost unlimited power the manufacturers had about the beginning of this century. The men were rendered dizzy by it. Because a man was successful in his ventures, there was no reason that in all other things his mind should be well balanced. On the contrary, his sense of justice and his simplicity were often utterly smothered under the glut of wealth that came down upon him, and they tell strange tales of the wild extravagance of living indulged in on gala days by those early cotton lords. There can be no doubt, too, of the tyranny they exercised over their workpeople. You know the proverb, Mr. Ale, set a beggar on horseback and he'll ride to the devil. Well, some of those early manufacturers did ride to the devil in a magnificent style, crushing human bone and flesh under their horses' hooves without remorse. But by and by came a reaction. There were more factories, more masters, more men were wanted. The power of masters and men became more evenly balanced, and now the battle is pretty fairly waged between us. We will hardly submit to the decision of an umpire, much less to the interference of a meddler with only a smattering of the knowledge of the real facts of the case, even though that meddler be called the High Court of Parliament. Is there necessity for calling it a battle between the two classes? asked Mr. Hale. I know from your using the term it is one which gives a true idea of the real state of things to your mind. It is true, and I believe it to be as much a necessity as that prudent wisdom and good conduct are always opposed to and doing battle with ignorance and improvidence. It is one of the great beauties of our system that a working man may raise himself into the power and position of a master by his own exertions and behavior, that... In fact, every one who rules himself to decency and sobriety of conduct and attention to his duties comes over to our ranks. It may not be always as a master, but as an overlooker, a cashier, a bookkeeper, a clerk, one on the side of authority and order. You consider all who are unsuccessful in raising themselves in the world from whatever cause as your enemies then, if I understand you rightly, said Margaret in a clear, cold voice. As their own enemy, certainly, said he quickly, not a little piqued by the haughty disapproval her form of expression and tone of speaking implied. But in a moment... His straightforward honesty made him feel that his words were but a poor and quibbling answer to what she had said, and, be she as scornful as she liked, it was a duty he owed to himself to explain, as truly as he could, what he did mean. Yet it was very difficult to separate her interpretation and keep it distinct from his meaning. He could best have illustrated what he wanted to say by telling them something of his own life, but was it not too personal a subject to speak about to strangers? Still, it was the simple, straightforward way of explaining his meaning, so, putting aside the touch of shyness that brought a momentary flush of color into his dark cheek, he said, I'm not speaking without book. 
Sixteen years ago, my father died under very miserable circumstances. I was taken from school and had to become a man, as well as I could, in a few days. I had such a mother as few are blessed with, a woman of strong power and firm resolve. We went into a small country town where living was cheaper than in Milton, and where I got employment in a draper's shop. A capital place, by the way, for obtaining a knowledge of goods. Week by week, our income came to fifteen shillings, out of which three people had to be kept. My mother managed so that I put by three out of these fifteen shillings regularly. This made the beginning. This taught me self-denial. Now that I am able to afford my mother such comforts as her age, rather than her own wish requires, I thank her silently on each occasion for the early training she gave me. Now when I feel that in my own case it is no good luck, nor merit, nor talent, but simply the habits of life which taught me to despise indulgences not thoroughly and, indeed, never to think twice about them, I believe that this suffering which Miss Ayle says is impressed on the countenances of the people of Milton is but the natural punishment of dishonestly enjoyed pleasure at some former period of their lives. I do not look on self-indulgent sensual people as worthy of my hatred. I simply look upon them with contempt for their poorness of character. But you have had the rudiments of a good education, remarked Mr. Hale. The quick zest with which you are now reading Homer shows me that you do not come to it as an unknown book. You have read it before and are only recalling your old knowledge. That is true. I had blundered along it at school. I dare say I was even considered a pretty fair classic in those days, though my Latin and Greek have slipped away from me since. But I ask you, what preparations they were for such a life as I had to lead? None at all, utterly none at all. On the point of education, any man who can read and write starts fair with me in the amount of really useful knowledge that I had at that time. Well, I don't agree with you, but there I am perhaps somewhat of a pedant. Did not the recollection of the heroic simplicity of the Homeric life nerve you up? Not one bit, exclaimed Mr. Thornton, laughing. I was too busy to think about any dead people with the living pressing alongside of me neck to neck in the struggle for bread. Now that I have my mother safe in the quiet peace that becomes her age and duly rewards her former exertions, I can turn to all that old narration and thoroughly enjoy it. I dare say my remark came from the professional feeling of there being nothing like leather, replied Mr. Hale. When Mr. Thornton rose up to go away, after shaking hands with Mr. and Mrs. Hale, he made an advance to Margaret to wish her goodbye in a similar manner. It was the frank, familiar custom of the place, but Margaret was not prepared for it. She simply bowed her farewell, although the instant she saw the hand, half put out, quickly drawn back, she was sorry she had not been aware of the intention. Mr. Thornton, however, knew nothing of her sorrow, and drawing himself up to his full height, walked off, muttering as he left the house, A more proud, disagreeable girl I never saw.
Even her great beauty is blotted out of one's memory by her scornful ways. Right. We got them in the same room at the same time and almost talking. But the sparks are flying already. Proud. This would have been called Pride and Prejudice if that title hadn't already been taken, right? We can see it now. They both are proud. They both are prejudiced in their own ways against each other's homeland, really. And... And yet, the sparks. Now, I'm sure some people have had reactions to Mr. Thornton's mother over time uh, that, you know, it, depending on whether you're a Freudian or not, would veer into the Oedipal complex or or whatever. And I, I really hope that Chapter 10 kind of puts that all to rest, that this is a, a close family, the Thorntons, a tight-knit family, very much like the Hales are, a small family, but also one where the the pride that Mrs. Thornton feels for, for herself and for her son comes from hard-won success. These people have not had easy lives. They have worked for everything they got. They are very proud of that fact. And I, I think for, uh, for Americans, it probably doesn't seem like all that big a deal. You know, it's like, oh, well, this is one of those self-made men. This is Carnegie. This is, uh, you know, somebody who started off with nothing and made their way in the world. And over here, it's the the American dream. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and all that. And isn't it great? Rah, rah, rah. And I don't think prior to the Industrial Revolution, there was a whole lot of opportunity for upward mobility in a classed society. And so Mrs. Thornton, I think any mother would be really displeased to see her son hanging out with someone who didn't value the same things in him that she did, the things that saved their family, which is why it was so important for Gaskell to put that story out of Thornton's mouth, not told third person, but Thornton tells it to Margaret and Margaret's father and mother, that it's so important for us to get that story now rather than later. Now, if she'd saved it for later, then it would have been one of those uh, kind of cheese ball moments. You know, oh, why didn't you tell me so long ago? Oh, because I needed to have the plot last long enough <laughs> for there to be some kind of conflict. And if I had dropped it all so early, you would have run off with me back then, and then there would have been no movie in the end. And happily, it is at this point in our narrative where I can finally share some of my conversations with Larry Uffelman with you. Up until now, our, our entire conversation that I recorded has been loaded with spoilers. And I'm going to be, you know, piecemealing as we go so that I don't spoil anything else. But I thought you'd like to hear a little bit of a conversation between me and someone who has spent his life studying Elizabeth Gaskell and also this book. 
it's clear from the very beginning of the novel that Thornton and and she are attracted to each other, and that ultimately this is going to work out. Yeah. On page 60 in the edition I read, for instance, we discover that Mr. Thornton has replaced the offensive wallpaper. Yes. Well, that's a sign he's not as awful a person as Margaret has supposed. So that inevitably the two are going to work this out. But it's not going to be easy, and Margaret is going to assert herself. Yeah. As she must. Right. Margaret's father doesn't create any progress. Right. He he has retreated. Yeah. And he's he's very sad and he's sorry and he 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 has the right sort of emotions, but he doesn't do anything. Yeah. Whereas Margaret in her own way forces the issue. Yeah. And all the way along too, when she when she goes up and she's looking for the looking at the property. Oh yeah. And just taking the bull by the horns over and over again. Well, you can note, I think that she she has a, an almost masculine role. Yes. Masculine role in Victorian terms, you know, not masculine role in terms of truth. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but she does all of the work in that family. Yes, she does. She organizes the move. Yep. She finds the place to live. She gets the wallpaper changed. <laughs> she she asserts herself over and over again in places where some kind of leadership is necessary. So she has a, an almost unconventional role. From the very beginning of the novel. Yeah. I was I was surprised at how, how very, very modern uh she she felt as a character in some ways. And and then there are moments like the wallpaper, the first time I read it, I thought, Oh really, seriously, that is the <laughs> only thing you're gonna uh, and then I thought, No. If you're a woman, you are going to be spending at least eighty percent of your days in that room with that wallpaper. And if <laughs> if it's a if it's a Charlotte Perkins Gilman yellow wallpaper situation. Then you really need to make a change. <laughs> you need to change the wallpaper. <laughs> it's not a small thing if that's the only room you get to live your life in for the most part, except for, you know, visiting. Yeah. And there was no one to visit there, so Yeah. And it's also it's also clear early in the novel that Margaret likes uh Mr. Thornton's uh rendition of his early life she mm-hmm. admires his plain spokenness mm-hmm. what they what's needed is something between the two to overcome the prejudice and the misunderstanding and the misunderstanding between them yeah um they they fundamentally are attracted to each other and that has and and then you know <laughs> in any relationship the rest of it has to be worked out <laughs> <laughs> that's so true <laughs> <laughs> It's like the easy part's done. Now we got yeah, to change the wallpaper. Now get on with it. <laughs> if only life were that simple. All yes, the time. indeed. <laughs> so yes, I have an awful lot of fun talking to Larry, and I will have more audio of our conversation as we go through the book and and past the point of the spoilers. But you know, here we are. It's this fabulous point in the book. We, we finally get Margaret and Thornton together in the same room in a situation where they he's just revealed a very personal story about himself and Margaret's intrigued. And, and then there's this gaffe with the handshake thing. And of course, Margaret's got to be frustrated because she learned her manners in London, which means that's the way you should be doing things. And he doesn't get it and she doesn't get it. And it's just a big mess. 
And that's, I think, what makes one of the things that makes this book so awesome is that it it isn't either one's fault that they can't speak the same language, that they're they're talking at cross purposes so often. It's just, well, yeah. I mean, it would take a real effort on both of their parts to sit down and say, okay, explain to me how you people do all of these things because I don't get it and none of y'all are making any sense to me. Yeah, but that takes a, a certain amount of courage. It also takes someone who gives you the opportunity to do that and they don't seem to be giving each other a whole lot of opportunities. I, mean, I would actually say at this point, Thornton has tried. Maybe. Some. And, and, and Margaret's tried in her own way. Some. And Margaret, Margaret will continue to be uh, an interesting and strong presence throughout this novel. And with that, I think I'm going to let you go. You have a great week. Don't forget to drop by Facebook and say hi, or Ravelry and say hi. You can leave reviews for the show and the app at Amazon, at iTunes, and wherever else you can find. And that would be fabulous. You take care. Have a great week. I will talk to you soon. And by then I'll know why I am so sleepy. (laughs) Have a great one. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlet.com, or via our Android, our new Windows 8, or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlet app to access premium subscriber content. Craftlet is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.